Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 25. This week, we discuss the awesomeness of the web with Jeremy Foster, how space battles actually work, the 4K programmer, and why is NASA creating one programming language to rule them all? Hey, Carl, it seems like we just talked yesterday. I, I, I think we just might have <laughs> talked yesterday. So to fill in the, the listeners, we actually recorded an episode yesterday, and uh, we're spreading these out, though, because I'm going to be on the road for a bit. And so will I. So... Okay. So, so we're spreading these, uh, these episodes out. So the, the, the news that we picked is, uh, is a little, um, you know, not, not relevant to the time, but they're still interesting stories nonetheless. So this week we, uh, we also have Jeremy Foster and, uh, he is a developer evangelist with Microsoft. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I had talked to you, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. We just chatted about, you know, a couple of different development things on uh, Windows Phone. Uh, my voice was uh, wasn't doing that great. I was uh, I wasn't feeling that great, but <laughs> we still had a, a good discussion. And I said, hey, why don't you come on the show? Because we had a good time talking. So I'm glad you're yeah, able to absolutely. come on. Absolutely. And I like talking. I always say the only thing I like more than writing code is talking about writing code. Yeah. So let's jump into the news. So the first one here. So what do you got, Carl? I haven't even looked at this. Real space battles would be more asteroids than Star Wars. Oh, great. You better not get me on my asteroid mining. Tangent. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> I thought this was a cool article. One, it was, you know, it, it doesn't have anything directly to do with coding or development or anything. But, you know, it kind of makes me think about, you know, like if I were making a game, and I wanted it to be as realistic as possible. Uh, this article talks about the physics of space battles in Star Star Wars is mm-hmm. kind of based on airplanes and World War II bombers and stuff like that. And it's not how you would fly or have battle at all in real life. Um, it would more be more like the old game Asteroids, where it was the vector-based game where you kind of slid all over the place you, you, you oh, don't sort of twist it around and shot in different directions yep and there's a video with this so i'd highly encourage everybody to go out uh, to the show notes click the link and check out the video it's six minutes it's it's hilarious um but they do a real good job explaining like you wouldn't you know like on a plane you constantly have your engines going and you're kind con- you know that gives you that propulsion well in space you just kind of go you would only need to fire your engines at short bursts to either accelerate or to change momentum uh to mm-hmm. steer yourself and uh you know, I was kind of thinking, you know, if, if I were making a space game, I'd probably want to try something, you know, to be a little bit more closer to what the actual physics would be. Of course. So, yeah, what what always got me was, you know, in Star Trek with the with the Enterprise, not in the uh, not in the remake, but but pretty much every other variation of the Enterprise, they they always were able to shoot their phasers in, in like any direction. And there was nothing being aimed, right? Mm-hmm. So I never understood how they missed. I mean, these things are presumably like the speed of light. So the second that you fire, you know, if you if you're aimed, like you can't miss unless somebody else is traveling at the speed of light. That's that's totally true. I never thought of that. <laughs> so I always found it. Yeah, you've got these beams going off in a million directions. Yeah, I mean, if you can, if if you can, uh, if you're shooting at ships that are not traveling the speed of light, and you can instantly fire in any direction it pretty much makes it impossible to miss. And they were also talking about in real life, they, were, they went over lasers versus projectiles and the problem mm-hmm. with focusing a laser in space and how projectiles are superior, but they would still have to navigate like you would. So, you know, you don't have a guided missile that just kind of curves around as it wants to. It's still, you know, subject to the sliding and the redirection. Okay. Well, I'd like to think that we'll have peace in space. <laughs> <laughs> they they even cover that. They said, you know, oh, they do. <laughs> well, they thought of everything. Well, that's pretty geeky. So let's let's move on to something a little bit more developer related. So I, hey, you're saying developer related related is not geeky. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's also geeky, but maybe more on topic. 
So this one is called the 4K programmer. And this one, this one's pretty close to my heart because I, you know, I sit in front of monitors all day as, as you know, just like you guys do. And I, I've seen monitors as a, as an investment, you know, the monitors that I have in front of me are, are pretty expensive. And normally you keep monitors around for years and years and years. Uh, monitor technology, you know, in the, in the past 10 years actually hasn't changed a whole lot. I mean, once LCDs got good, they you know, they are, they hit the high resolution pretty quick, but now we have these 4k screens. So this was talking about actually using uh 4k screens for development. And I'm a little bit envious because this guy, he went through and he, you know, he had to do a little bit of configuration on one of these uh, TVs to get it, um, to get the settings the way that he wanted, but it looks pretty darn good. And he, he says that it's a really good picture for this. So I thought that was kind of neat. And it was linked to another article called 4k is for programmers. We'll include both these in the show notes. But um, it's talking about how you can buy a $500 TV that's a 4K display and it's a, uh, let's see here, 39 inch LED screen. So for 500 bucks, I mean, you can get that thing a lot cheaper than a monitor. It's higher resolution and it's bigger. Um, It's just a kind of a cool concept. And then what? Put it a foot in front of your face? Well, uh, you know, you could put it back a little bit more, but yeah, essentially you're putting it in front of your face and, you know, they show Visual Studio on this and it it looks fairly reasonable. I mean, at 39 inches, the pixels are probably about the same size as the pixels that are in front of me. And I have, so I have two 27 inch monitors and they're 2560 by 1440. And uh, let's see, a 4K is, uh, let's see here, 3840 by 2160. So at 39 inches, it's actually, you know, I'd, I'd have to do kind of the DPI calculations, but it's not a whole lot different than what I have in front of me, yeah. but I have a thousand dollars worth of monitor sitting in front of me. Yeah. So that would make things interesting. The only thing that you would lose if you only had one of these is, you know, with two monitors, you get that nice, um, I don't remember what's called, but where you, you drag it, you know, a screen, uh, a window over to the side of the screen the and snap. It, it snaps. Yeah. The snap Docking. view. Yeah. The snap view. And, um, with two monitors, it makes it pretty easy to do that snap view. If you have one monitor, you can only snap to two sides. Although, you know what? It's kind of difficult to snap in the middle of mine anyway. But uh, I know that there's some productivity numbers attached to having two monitors just because you you can sort of segregate in your mind like, okay, I'm going to put this type of thing on my one monitor. Like I'll put, you know, have, I'll be playing like a, uh, you know, plural site video in the background on one screen and then I'll sort of make my other one, my work screen. So you do lose that with a 4k screen, but I, I, you know, for a lot of people, I think this makes a ton of sense. I think that can be done with software. I used to use a utility actually that would allow me to use a keyboard shortcut and send whatever window was active to one of the four quadrants of the screen. Right. Right. And so my screen was big enough that I could imagine it as four separate quadrants and easily uh, assign a window to one area there. And that was yeah. really helpful. Stardock probably has something like that. I know on the Mac, there's a program called Divi and that works pretty good where you, you can do different, it's like a grid layout. It's not even just four quadrants. You know, it actually breaks it up into any number of pieces and you can do sort of macros where you can have like different console windows in different places and, and dock them into those different squares. It's pretty cool. Yeah. In addition to these high res monitors, ever since we kind of got stuck on, you know, 1080p kind of displays have been stuck for a while. And it's nice to see a little bit of advancement. But the other Mm -hmm. thing that I'm a huge fan out of is vertical monitors. And you take a regular monitor and swivel it vertical. It's not quite the same because the pixels aren't oriented properly. And thank you for thank you for actually knowing that everybody looks at me like I'm an idiot when I say that or or they think I'm joking. No. And and the thing is, I I have a vertical monitor right here in front of me, but it it looks a little bit off because Mm -hmm. those pixels aren't lined up correctly. And it would be nice to have some of those in the consumer market that aren't insane. Uh, The closest one I was actually trying to find some this morning. I found a 72 inch vertical monitor that's 1080p. Mike, that is 
one way too big and two <laughs> the pixels on that thing would be huge just move it further away that's no problem that's that's pretty hilarious but yeah the the, the whole vertical pixel thing people don't realize the the pixels first of all they're not square they're rectangular and they're actually made up of you know separate uh sub pixels and they're just they're all the sub pixels are side by side so you 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 flip that thing up on end you have issues first of all it's a, a tn display instead of an ips display so if it's a cheaper panel you have this issue with the the viewing angle um so as you move your chair up and down it's going to look different but then you have an, an issue with just the the pixels are distorted you know if you look at some text the text will look different if the monitor is vertical instead of horizontal people think i'm joking when i say that but i'm absolutely not joking <laughs> You know, something that made me think of is this workflow of using a larger screen. If, in fact, that does mean that you need to work a little bit further away from your monitor, mm-hmm. then that has a, a bit of a overlap with the movement toward touch uh, with touchscreen. That's true. And, you know, I actually was thinking, well, you know, touchscreen is fun for when I'm out or whatever. But when I'm at my station, I probably won't use it that much. But uh, I've recently used large touchscreen monitors right in front of me and been amazed at the workflow productivity advancements that mm-hmm. it's given me. You know, just the ability to like when I'm working on a slideshow to slide, uh, the, drag the slides around, put them in, change the order of them or whatever. There's just a lot of really good touch scenarios. I wouldn't want to lose that. Yeah. Are you thinking, are you talking like a perceptive pixel or something smaller than that? Well, smaller than that. What I was working on was just a 24 inch, okay. um, but just, but just right in front of me so that it was actually on the desk, not up on the wall in front of me right. so that I, I, I had a bit of a, a, a painter's palette as opposed to mm. a, a TV in front of me. That's interesting. So it's sort of immersive, you know, as far as like your vision and then also as far as being able to touch it and manipulate things on right. the screen. Yeah, the thing that's down low in front of you in, at your desk feels like the thing you're working on, whereas the thing right. at the wall, you know, is more of a, a reporting mechanism. No, you're right. My screens are probably a good two feet away from me just because they're so huge. And then I have my yeah. Surface Pro 3 sitting right in front of me. And sometimes I just use the Surface Pro 3 because it's yeah. it's like it's like right there. You know, I just yeah. I can I can connect with it better. Plus, the it's funny because the Surface Pro 3 screen now makes my monitors not look that great, even though they are fairly high resolution. Um, if I stare at the Surface Pro 3 screen for all of the crisp text and the high DPI, you know, the, the text scaling and I look at my monitors, they I can I can see the pixels. So enough talking about monitors. This uh, this next one here was very interesting. The NSA is funding a project to roll all programming languages into one. So tell us about this, Carl. Yep. Now, uh, like you said, the NSA is funding uh, Carnegie Mellon University into doing some research. Um, they're creating a new programming language called Wyvern. It's out on GitHub. We'll have uh, links to that in the show notes as well. And uh, their quote on there is, web applications today are written as poorly coordinated mishmash of artifacts written in different languages, file formats, and technologies. And then they go on to say you have HTML and CSS and XML and you use Java and you know plain text configuration files and you have database mm-hmm. server. And it you know, they, they talk about how it's the cost of developers to learn and maintain their skill sets and all these technologies. And they're just trying to develop something that can serve everything all at once. Okay. So they're solving the problem by adding another language. Yes. The one, <laughs> the one to rule them all. Yeah. That's the great thing about standards, right? Yes. Am I the only one wondering why this is the NSA that's dealing <laughs> yeah, with this? <laughs> what, why do they care? Yeah. I, I don't know. There's a little blinking light in the top of the window whenever you're coding with it. Well, on, on top of spying on us, their job is to protect us from everybody else as well. So if they can get us to write more secure code, it's one thing that's mentioned in there. Then, okay. uh, you know, that can 
keep the U.S. you know above and beyond everybody else, you know, technologically okay. reasoning. Uh, but I don't, I, I don't think that's really a great idea to just shove everything into one language. Uh, a lot of times, you just need that. You know, like SQL is is great for that querying. Um, I, yeah. I I can't imagine writing a, a query in the same language that I would, you know, my my website. Yeah, Jeff Atwood was the one that that sort of pointed me to that. You know, talking about how you know he always wanted to use domain specific languages. So you know, what what I wish, you know, whenever I'm writing, let's say I'm writing C sharp code and I need to you know do a query on the database, it seems kind of silly that I have to use link, right? Why can't I use SQL? And and we were sort of there, but it was really shoving SQL statements into strings, and it was just it was it was horrific. And, uh, what I always wanted was the ability to be writing my C sharp code and, oh, now I need to go grab some data from the database. So I start saying select star from, and I get IntelliSense, you know, that would be awesome. And I'm actually hitting, you know, it's connected to the database and, and I don't have to do any kind of mapping. It just knows like, oh, that's the database and done. Now I, I know that there's reasons for having that middle layer in there to do some of that mapping, but man, that sure would be a, a nice world if, if you could just, um, switch between these. And actually, I think we're going to be talking about this a little bit, but this, um, you know, I've personally been struggling with C sharp and JavaScript, you know, cause I do each one about 50% of the time and I just have, you know, uh, indecision paralysis, you know, because I, I, I start writing in one language, I run into an issue and I'm like, oh man, this would be so much better in the other language. So then I switch over to that and then, you know, I just keep going back and forth. And at the end of the day, I actually haven't written anything. So what you're saying <laughs> is you're going to check out and fork get uh, this Wyvern language and check it out. Uh, no, I'm looking at it right now. This looks horrible. You know what? Even if the technical implementation of this harebrained idea is phenomenal, it, you, you and I both know that this will never fly with folks. No. I mean, it's just, no. I, mm-hmm. I think that the, the software development world today is far too democratic for this to happen. Yeah. Could, could, could you see Apple like, oh, we just came out with Swift, but, you know, we're switching to Wyvern. So, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Not never going to happen. This, this is pretty, this looks like um, uh, maybe Python. It kind of looks like. Is that what it looks like? I'm not a big Python guy. Um, it, it's interesting because they're using like Java libraries, and I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, this is I, I don't I don't know what to quite what to make of this. This doesn't uh, to to come out with a language to say this is the one. I'm 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 missing something. So let's I'm move somewhat on. depressed. I'm somewhat depressed that they're spending my tax dollars on Weber. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, this is getting more money than probably any language we're using, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Ah, so anyway, anyway, uh, let's get to the good part here. Talking to Jeremy Foster. So, um, Jeremy, we, uh, we brought you on, like I, like I mentioned, I had a a good conversation with you recently and I, I just wanted to keep talking to you about a a couple of different things. And like I mentioned before, I've, I've been stuck in this, uh, the the middle of C sharp and JavaScript. And I know you do a lot of JavaScript work. So I wanted to kind of dive into uh, that world and, uh, and get some of your perspectives on that. So I guess, you know, my first question, let's, let's sort of figure out, uh, you know, where, where we're starting from here. So like, what is your, what is your go-to set of tools for building applications? You know, the web platform, I guess, would be at the core to my answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been, I've been working with the web platform for shoot a really long time, I guess. And, um, you know, the web platform used to be, uh, this space where you just write client code. And then, at least in my uh, arc, in, in my experience, it, it switched so that then I was writing more server-side code, you know, writing a lot of database stuff and a lot of uh, server-side logic, a lot of C-sharp. And so um, the middle of my career, if you will, um, 
was writing a lot of C-sharp code, got a lot of experience writing C-sharp. And then when I got back to um, working with Windows apps, I've done a lot with Windows apps using JavaScript because it's just kind of a fun space, you know? I mean, it's just, it's neat to be using this web stack for writing something that ends up being run directly on the client, you know, that, so that I can I can just write uh, the web the same exact code for my my website and my my apps. I think that's pretty great. And in doing that, it's like I moved away from the server a little bit and back to pure JavaScript. Well, that in addition to the fact that pure JavaScript kind of got easier to write with some of the uh, the latest changes in in ECMAScript five standard and so on. So. I guess I would say that my go-to set of tools for building apps is um, is using JavaScript in one form or another. So if I can target uh, an individual platform, then uh, like if I can target Windows or Windows Phone, then I'll just use JavaScript natively. And if not, then I'll make the decision between using something like Xamarin or something like uh, Cordova, one of these efforts to get all of the code across platform. And and I'm not saying that it's uh, an ideal set of tools. I, I think we're in in a, kind of a lot of transition, unfortunately, right now. It's still a really fun time to be a developer, but I think we are in kind of a lot of transition. So yeah, if you ask me today, it's it's JavaScript here or JavaScript there, but uh, it's not by any means a utopia. Yeah, I used to I used to think that, you know, whenever this whole JavaScript on the server thing came up, I thought it was a joke. I mean, <laughs> like literally I'm like, <laughs> like nobody really, really wants that. And then, and then I started doing some Node.js development. I, you know, I think it was probably a year or two after it uh, came out, but you know, Node.js has actually been out for a few years now. And when I started using it and, and some of the, the, the power of the things that I was able to do, I was like, ah, okay, I get it now. You know, maybe, you know, JavaScript is actually a pretty good language. And guess what? With the, the right supporting libraries, you can do pretty much whatever you want. And, yeah. and that's, that's when I started to really change my mind. Yeah, it kind of feels like you're getting away with something when you're writing JavaScript. <laughs> you know? yeah. it's, it's, it's exaggerated when you write JavaScript for a while, and then you go back to C Sharp and you start thinking about how you're going to, you know, pass a, a, re a return object back, and you go, "Really? I have to write a class for that? Man, yeah, it's going to take you know one or two more files and mm -hmm. and uh, maybe a messaging subsystem." <laughs> yeah, it can be frustrating. And on the last episode. You know, one of the things we talked about was was writing interfaces. And as far as I know, I mean, I don't think JavaScript has any concept of interface. I mean, it's more uh, duct typing where, you know, two things is as long as they, you know, act like they have the same interface, you're good to go. You know, you yeah, can substitute right. anything with anything. Else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's this concept of um, extension by uh, inheritance versus extension by composition. Yeah. And in JavaScript, we use extension by composition where we, we actually compose capabilities, you know, methods and so on from one object over into another. And so just to use your analogy of uh, the duct typing, if I've got a, a quack function, I could just give it to an object. And as long as a, as long as an object is able to quack because it has the quack, Mm -hmm. function, the quack method, then it's a duck. As, as far as anybody in your application is concerned, it's a duck because it knows how to quack. Yeah. And then the the power of JavaScript. I mean, I recently there was uh, a function that required uh, a wrapper around it. And what kind of blew my mind? I, you know, I didn't even think about it at first. And I think it was kind of the, the C sharp half of my brain uh, was thinking like, you know, I'm kind of stuck with what I'm with what I have. But then once I started doing a lot of reading, I realized, hey, wait a second, JavaScript sort of lets me rewrite anything I want to rewrite. So if I'm not <laughs> yeah. happy with something, I can just completely change it. And, yeah. you know, you can do that in C Sharp now. You can you can dive in. I mean, the compilers, you know, Roslyn is open source, the, the compiler. So, 
you know, you could go and do it that way. I, I, to be honest, I just don't know how to do that yet, but in JavaScript, you know, in my case, I wasn't happy with, uh, uh, how this one function was working. So what I did was I just redefined that function and wrapped it, you know, with, with some different, uh, information. So then the function worked the way I wanted it to. And, and it was, it was actually pretty elegant. I mean, it was just a couple lines of code and it was pretty clear what it did. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I might've been violating some kind of rule, but you know, so what? It actually solved the problem. It was real easy. And I don't know how I would have done it in C Sharp. One of the ways that the differences between C Sharp and JavaScript shows up is if you compare um, how possible it is to throw some C Sharp at a person and kind of stump them. And, and, you know, you can. There's always somebody that's good enough with the nuances of C Sharp that they can throw you something and make you go, what? How is that possible? Or why does it work that way? Um, but it's, it's relatively difficult because C Sharp's really straightforward, really um, self-descriptive. And, but with JavaScript, it's so easy to just throw somebody, some, some code at somebody and say, t- you know, tell me what you expect to be the result here. And a seasoned JavaScripter can look at it and go, uh, either I have no idea or I expect it to be five when the answer is eight. Yeah. Yeah. There's a funny video called uh, WAT. We should include that in the show notes. Have you guys both seen that? Yeah. We, I haven't seen WAT. <laughs> you made us watch that at work, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. It's like required viewing for anybody doing JavaScript. Just so you, just so you, anytime you ever think that you're sane when you're doing JavaScript, you need to watch that and realize that that's, that's a lie. <laughs> that's true. Mm-hmm. Now for, you know, as technology evolves just faster and faster, and we're seeing like all these JavaScript f- frameworks popping up all over the place. Um, you know, how's somebody who's maybe not, you know, at the edge of JavaScript every day, how are they supposed to keep their sanity when they want to, you know, jump in, you know, and maybe do a website when they're kind of normally doing a little bit of the back end stuff. But, you know, how do you keep that in your head? Yeah. So I think, you know, as far as trying to keep up with which libraries there are and whether or not you should use them, I, I think that um, you, you kind of need to follow the news and maybe follow some Google trends and, and get on Twitter and follow the hashes and see um, how much chatter there is about them because a, a library is no longer just validated because it's released by X company. Mm-hmm. It's validated because it's released by, you know, X indie developer. And then it's also forked by 148 different people and used by, you know, 500 different people. And, and then, and you follow those trends to see which ones you have more assurance in actually taking on as a dependency in your app. Yeah. I was just thinking about that this morning. Actually, it's, you know, there's these products that come out and actually I'm looking right now for, you know, a video editing application. And a friend of mine sent me a link to one and it was not, not necessarily a no name video application, but you know, you start looking and, and, and when it, if you compare it to something like iMovie, I mean, iMovie, if we say that that's got a million people that use it, this application that he sent me probably has a hundred, you know, like that's the, the order of magnitude of number of people using it. So, you know, if you, if you look at it that way, you know, I'd be concerned about support and longevity. And so, you know, I'm looking for the same thing from a a JavaScript library. Like I want to make sure that, you know, you could make the argument, well, nobody has to use it for it to be good, but they have to use it for the the person developing it to keep maintaining it. I mean, if you're the only one using it, they might just throw, you know, stop doing it someday. Now, just because it's got a lot of people using it doesn't mean that they're going to maintain it either. But that that gives you a, a better chance of the community supporting it. If it if if the original developer stops doing it, you know, those things, because I think um, I think that happened like Node.js 
I don't know if he's still, you know, the original author uh, still works on that, but you know, that's sort of been taken over by the community. And you know, so a lot of the really big things are now community supported instead of being, you know, the baby of one person. Well, I, I yeah, that's right. I think one of the new skill sets that we have to have is, you know, how, how do you look at a like GitHub repository? I mean, I was evaluating, um, a, a set of libraries that I was looking at to include in a project I'm working on. And I was looking at things like when was the, the most recent commits made? You know, you know how, oh, yeah. how much are they updating? You know, how many contributors are there? It's something I would have not even thought of a year ago to look at when I was looking at GitHub for something like that. So I think it's interesting yep. how, you know, our, our social aspects need to change as we move on along with the technology as well. Yeah. Do they close issues? Do they accept pull requests? You know, all those types of things go go into that. And that's, you know, absolutely what I look for. And, you know, the thing is, sometimes uh, and we'll talk about AngularJS here in a minute, but sometimes what ends up happening is, you know, the the thing that 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 you're hoping sort of wins, you know, maybe there's a couple different, uh, you know, uh, you know, competing libraries out there, maybe the one you picked isn't the winner and they sort of go to the wayside and one just sort of breaks through and everybody flocks to it eventually uh, just because it sort of reaches critical mass. And that can be that can be really difficult sometimes. You know, what's one of my bottom line criterions for how how much momentum is there behind this library and, and should I use it? It's just to do a quick tag search on Stack Overflow mm-hmm. that's because that's point. not only people that are contributing to it, because I guess it's theoretically possible for there to be some really solid code out there that doesn't really require any contributions uh, in order for it to do what it does really well. But if there are people asking questions about how to use it and answering questions about how to use it on Stack Overflow, then it's probably pretty good. Yeah, that's true. And that'll tell you sort of the ratio, too, of questions versus answers. And you want you want a healthy volume of both and you want to make sure that there's a good ratio that it's not all questions and it's not uh, I guess maybe all answers would be would be OK, <laughs> although the lack of questions would <laughs> would uh, would be a little scary. So well, and the kinds of questions. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about Angular JS. I, I don't I don't know if this is a big library in your in your toolbox, but um, I know Angular JS has taken off at an insane rate. I've I've built a couple. I, I don't even know if I want to call them applications. You know, we'll call them applets or something like that, you know, smaller, really small applications based on angular JS. I, I love it. I love the way that it works. I love how it, it makes things real easy to, uh, makes it really easy to build an interactive application. That's super powerful. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm just kind of curious what, what you think of angular JS. Um, and then, you know, what do you, what do you think is going to be kind of the leading choice for that type of framework going forward? And what do you use? So I really do like AngularJS. I'm I'm kind of a baby AngularJS developer like like yourself, perhaps. Um, I haven't been using it uh, for a really long time, but one of the reasons why I looked into it initially is because the, the Windows team, uh, the WinJS team, actually wrote a shim to to make the WinJS UI controls work in an AngularJS uh, project. And I, I thought that was really great, and I looked into it and uh, started using that. And um, I think that, so I was watching a, a video on the subject. I don't remember what the exact subject was, but they were basically saying that Angular is for extending your UI, just like services are for extending your, your backend, your logic. 
Like if you need extra logic in your in your app, you bring in services, either web services, remote services, or or logic that follows a services pattern that that you wrote yourself. But that's for logic, whereas Angular is for extending your UI, and that's exactly what Angular is. I mean, it's the it's the first framework that I've seen that really starts mucking with your HTML to to that. But to this point, up to the point where Angular was developed, you know, everybody was kind of content with leaving the HTML alone and just doing everything behind the scenes with the JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And Angular said, well, this isn't, this isn't necessarily the right way to do this. There, you know, if we do some things to the HTML, extend it just a bit, then we're going to make our, uh, our JavaScript, our, our logic a lot less relevant, a lot less necessary. And so, um, <clears throat> Just seeing it as an extension to the HTML, A, helps me understand it, and B, helps me to position it relative to the other options that I have. So I don't necessarily think that it replaces um, a lot of the other frameworks, although it kind of ends up replacing them just because if you can do it through simple UI extensions, then you may as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I re- I just think it's an absolute joy to use. Now, i got to ask you, you mentioned, mentioned a shim between WinJS and AngularJS. Yeah. When did that come out? Was that recent? I don't know exactly when it came out. Um, it's, it is on GitHub. It's been available for okay. Shoot, uh, two, you know, two, two or three or four months, I guess. Okay, because I was doing, I was trying to do WinJS and Angular before that, and I was very frustrated because, uh, and actually, I think we we talked about this a little bit on the, uh, I think it was the last show, um, because we were talking about WinJS 3.0, but yeah. uh, WinJS is really awesome for building, you know, JavaScript applications. But then whenever I tried to mix in Angular, you know, the, a, a couple of simple things worked, but then there were certain Angular elements that just were completely incompatible. So if there's a shim, yeah. I am very, very interested in that. So I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah, there's a shim and it's certainly a good one. It's uh, it's at GitHub, github.com slash CodeMonkeyChris okay. slash Angular dash WinJS. Okay. Yeah, and it allows you to, for instance, you know, you've got a rating control. And the WinJS way of doing that is to say, I'll make a div, I'll give it a property that tells it that it's the rating control, and then another property that tells it what the options are. And you can data bind those options by, by using a win data, uh, a win data bind, um, attribute and then binding certain values. But the binding in, of these controls, of these WinJS controls is somewhat short of simple because you have to, <clears throat> Excuse me. You have to um, specify the property and the value that you want it to be, and it's, it's not quite connected. I guess is the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. So, when you do it with the Angular shim, then you just end up using a new HTML element that is win dash rating. That's the name of the HTML element that you use, and all of the options that are broken out as separate attributes. What are your thoughts on Node.js versus uh, more traditional web API, ASP.NET, and MVC that uh, you know a Microsoft developer might be more used to? I myself am really struggling with this right now. I mean, there's something about writing just a Node.js uh, web, uh, web service that is appealing because I have a pure JavaScript solution. But I, although I'm pretty idealistic, I try not to be because I, I want to do whatever it is that's going to get the job done. And... I still, if I'm going to go write something brand new, I'll still go back to like a web API project because there's just too much that um, C Sharp and the ASP.NET library are offering me that I don't get with Node.js. Um, there's just too much for me to pass it by. Mm-hmm. So although I really like Node.js and in certain instances, it's you know kind of the right tool for the job. You just need a quick little easy web server out of JavaScript that does one quick, easy, simple little thing. 
that's great, but most of my solutions end up being uh, some some business logic, some ties to a database, and all, all these higher end things that uh, are more difficult with Node.js. No, that's a that's a great take on it. I mean, I had a I had a situation recently, and this was you know this was kind of uh, ridiculous. I <laughs> I all I was trying to do was uh, from a uh, this was just in development on my phone from an app. I wanted to post some data to a web API project. So I created a web API project and then I went through and I spent 20 minutes just removing like all the extra stuff that you get in there. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, I, it, it's pretty straightforward in web API. I mean, you say, uh, you know, you create your controller and then you do this uh, from body attribute on the, uh, on the parameter. And then whenever you call it, it should just be a matter of saying, here's my post data and it should be the easiest thing in the world. And I had a heck of a time and I even called, um, Brandon Martinez. He's a friend of the show. And, uh, he's like, this is just crazy. He's like, I don't know why this isn't working. And we spent about an hour on it. It was, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And then I went into uh, Node.js, which again, I've done, you know, sort of 50, 50 on, on each of these. If you look at my experience over the past two or three years, and I was able to do it in about five minutes. And, and then that really got me thinking, you know, okay, so based on that example, can I say that Node.js is better because for actually for, for the past, you know, like year and a half, I've been saying, well, there's actually nothing really special about Node.js. It's, it's just fast because it's asynchronous, but uh, you know, I think there's just a different philosophy at the core where Node.js, you start from nothing and you add things as, as you need it. So you basically right. build up and add as much complexity as you're willing to deal with. Whereas the sort of the .NET world and, and all those components, you start with everything you need to build, you know, a fairly complicated application. So even with all that information, there's still not a clear winner because it really depends on on the scenario. Now, what I was trying to do is quick and dirty. Node.js actually, I believe, was a better choice for that. Now, yeah. for most applications where I'm going to do probably, uh, you know, I guess JavaScript is good for testing. So that that probably makes the two equal. But if I'm going to build, you know, a substantial project that I need to maintain, at least for me, it'd be easier for me to maintain a, a bigger web API project and start to connect to things like a SQL database and, and you know, do some of these more advanced things. Yeah. So I just that was I've been doing a lot of thinking about it recently. Yeah, I think that there's a spectrum there, and uh, there, there's got to be some stuff in the middle. Node.js is in dire need of some really good tooling, and I don't know if you've seen the Node.js tools for Visual Studio, but they're excellent. Yeah, I mean, It's just really nice to have an environment, uh, something to kind of manage your project and bring in your package management and automate some stuff for you. That's really, really helpful. Web API on the other end is, is uh, very, very capable and gives you tons of power, and I really like the direction that the team is going where with um, Web API, so many of the components now are Owen extensions that that do exactly what you said, where you start with almost nothing and then you add in the components as you need them. It's not the paradigm right. that we're necessarily used to the last few iterations of Web API and, and certainly ASP.NET, but the recent iterations are very, very good at that. Yeah, and and Web API can be as fast as Node.js. I mean, people think that sure. Node.js is like the fastest thing on the planet, but again, it's because it's asynchronous. You know, Node has the, or, uh, you know, .NET, you know, ASP.NET has this legacy of, you know, a thread per request. And then there's been all these kind of goofy workarounds to get around that. But if you start to use the stack that you're talking about, then that stack starts to look like Node.js. It works in the same way. And you get the, the advantages of .NET being a fairly fast language. And it can start to, uh, you know, come at least within the same order of magnitude or in many cases actually beat the performance of Node.js. So, yeah. you know, I don't think somebody should pick one or the other based on performance. 
Uh, so you want to talk about applications. So, um, you know, my next question is around uh, modern web applications. And I'm just wondering, you know, now that now that, you know, we're getting so much power on these websites and we can start to wrap these things up into, you know, application containers. And, and we, we we're just in this world of flexibility and and infinite possibility. Is there you know, is there an advantage today to making an, a native application? So I think it's a loaded question in a sense. Um, but so I, I think my, my answer is going to be yes. There's certainly some advantage in making a native application, but it has to do with the definition of native. And I think that has evolved from native being using the native programming language of the device uh, versus a web application, which is wrapped in a browser. I think now native has evolved, at least in my mind it has, mm-hmm. to a native device is one that um, probably looks to the user like the other devices on their machine, on their device, the other, I'm sorry, the other apps on their device. Mm -hmm. It has the same control set. It has the, you know, the settings are in the same place. Um, Some of the features are similar. And then it has performance that feels like it's below their threshold of perception. They have, they have no idea if there are delays because everything just appears to snap instantly. Um, That's what I think users care about. So practically that's the native device for the users. So there's certainly advantage in making an app that looks and feels like the platform and performs flawlessly, fluidly. Um, and yet that can oftentimes be achieved with the web stack. You know, like you said, now we can make app packages. So on the Windows and Windows phone devices, we've kind of taken this web stack and said, let's run it natively. Um, and by natively, sure, it's still being run by the browser engine, but it's different because I, as the developer, get to access the full device. It feels native to me as the developer. Mm-hmm. I get to talk to the light sensor with one line of code. I get to talk to the camera. No problem. No, no security issues. No walls up for that. Um, now, is there still advantage using the classic definition of native? Is there still advantage, advantages to going to the native code? Yes, there are in many, many cases advantages to on, on Windows Phone dropping into C Sharp, on iOS dropping into iOS, um, uh, or Objective-C. There are certainly advantages to those for various cases, you know, for uh, maybe for high-speed um, uh, business apps, certainly for games, if you don't want to go even lower for games, but um, certainly reasons to go native, and then certainly reasons to go true native, as in, you know, C++, um, DirectX, and things like that, so... Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned at the beginning that you really when when you like to develop in JavaScript you would go straight to something like Cordova or one of those other maybe cross platform languages. Um, you know, should that be the you know way that more and more developers are going to be going towards their first forays into mobile development, or do you think that people even though, like you said, there, there's reasons to go to it, should should we use that as a second choice to develop natively? I, I don't think it's a first choice yet, no. I mean, when I talk to people generally about their their uh, apps, I, I like to recommend that people go down the, the road of using Xamarin um, because they can design today f- for uh, 
you know, just a, a good architecture using C Sharp, and it's going to work on whatever platform they want to start on, and then they're going to be able to migrate to the other applications. They're going to have a code base that's ready to migrate because they're going to have a core set of logic, and then they're going to have a, a very, very thin UI layer, which is exactly what I wish more people would do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like to walk people down that road if they're, you know, if they're not um, exactly sure. But uh, this, this using JavaScript and using it through Cordova is the way that I'm enjoying doing things right now and would certainly recommend it in certain cases. If, if you've got a team that already has tons of experience with the web platform, then by all means. Um, but, uh, but it's just not a silver bullet. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Cordova. Do you want to you explain a little bit more what Cordova is? Yeah, actually the um, easiest way, in my opinion, to explain it is with a little pain point that I ran into. I was working <laughs> on a, a game with some friends and we said, well, let's do this in JavaScript. And we, we wrapped it in, uh, we were doing it on the Windows phone. And so we wrapped it in XAML and C Sharp and uh, quickly discovered that we had the ability to call Java, you know, execute, invoke JavaScript functions from our C Sharp. And on, on the converse, we were able to throw a function call up in C in JavaScript and catch that with kind of a catch-all function in C Sharp. So, hey, this is great. We've got our way through the firewall, both directions, right? Because our, our client code can talk to our wrapper and our wrapper can talk down into our, our actual client code. Um, but then it wasn't very long before we decided, holy cow, that is extremely difficult because everything that you want to do has to go through the same one invocation method. And we have to wrap that with some metadata about what it is that we're trying to do. So this is just awful. And then around that time, Cordova was gaining in popularity. And, and that's exactly what Cordova does is it wraps that little uh, path through the firewall, that, that little interoperability between the platform language on the Windows Phone case of C Sharp down to the executing language of JavaScript. And it makes that whole thing easier for you. So that's what Cordova is doing. It even allows you to write custom methods and paths through that. I call it a firewall, even though it's not that at all. Um, so that's that's all Cordova is doing. And, and so you, you still are left with a number of legacy pain points. And I don't think it's the, the way forward. I don't think it's it's entirely the way forward. It's a really cool technology, and it does allow you to get on all the platforms very quickly for certain kinds of applications, but not a silver bullet. <laughs> yeah, and I always like to talk about the web app template as well. Um, I I think you're from mildly familiar with that, correct? I am. Yeah. So this is this is kind of neat. This lets you you know if you already have an existing uh, website you know, let's say the website is a web application or it's just a regular website. You can, you know, inject or you can go in there and and configure some, some JSON parameters and you can wrap this thing into uh, a web app. So you get, you know, with, without a whole lot of work, you can take an existing site and sort of enhance it with some of these, uh, you know, windows paradigms. And I, I, so I always, you know, tell people about this tool. It it doesn't make sense for everything, but I think it's just kind of a neat tool uh, to have in your uh, in your toolbox for for this type of scenario. Yeah, I don't know what your experience has been with this. No, I think it's been good. I think it's a good on ramp. Yeah, because it, I mean, I think what we all want. It, we are as developers. We are we're not always the content owners. Maybe we're working with a an organization that's trying to get their doctor's office online. They're trying to get their information out to their patients. And as the developer, you're you're kind of a producer of that content. And you you just want to land on all the platforms. I mean, shoot, you want to land on the web and every single device in everybody's pocket, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of doing that the best way. And if, uh, if 
Cordova gets you there quickly, then some of the unique advantages are the fact that you write the same language everywhere, including your website. So you've got a you've got a, maybe a service, you've got client code, you've got UI, and it's all talking the same exact stack. So that's a big advantage, and and that's what we're all looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, e- oh, I'm sorry. And what I was going to add to that was that this the web app toolkit is a really good on ramp because you've already written a website and you just want to get that to show up on the device. And uh, it, it doesn't necessarily take full advantage of the fact that you're on a device, but you can get to that later. This will get you so that the content is being delivered on the device in, in very little time. Right. Now, as we're talking about, you know, once again, the differences between, you know, native development, you know, and uh, oftentimes in, in the Microsoft world, that's XAML and web apps. Uh, you recently, a few months ago, had a blog post on the semantics of HTML and XAML. Uh, can you briefly go over that for us and kind of tell us at the end, what, what's your preference? Boy, I, I, I can't necessarily say <laughs> that I have a preference. Like I'm working on one game with some friends right now and we chose to use XAML. And, uh, but then most of the other stuff that I work on is HTML. The stacks are, they're definitely really different. And, um, the, you know, although they are positioned to be the same thing, they are a UI layer, there's some significant differences between the ways that developers use them. And one of the things I really like about HTML is that the structure is segregated from the style. You know, you've got HTML and you've got CSS and there they tween show me, you know, I mean, they, um, they certainly have effects on each other, but they are different files altogether. And in XAML, you can certainly use it to, to do that, to, you can create that same segregation, but that's not the norm. You know, normally your style is, is sprinkled a bit in with your, uh, XAML. So those are two fundamentally different natures of the two UI languages. And one that causes me to maybe mildly prefer HTML. I really like that, that segregation. But then with XAML, I love the fact that you are literally tied in with the underlying language. Mm-hmm. Nothing that you do in XAML is, disconnected from the underlying language. And so there's so many cool, powerful things that you can do in the language, uh, in the language of XAML that are uh, really just executions or invocations of the underlying C sharp. So it's hard to say. I mean, for a mobile app, if we, if we can go native, I, uh, I like the, um, uh, it's, it's a tough one. I like XAML <laughs> for that, but then HTML, boy, some of the art, some of the uh, components of HTML of the UI itself are getting pretty awesome. Like I would have said to anybody, if you're doing something that's remotely media related, you know, if you're going to be playing videos or audio or anything like that, shoot, go with XAML, you know, cause it's incredible there. And then all of a sudden they start introducing some cool stuff in HTML, like MPEG dash and complete control over that whole, uh, HTTP streaming of streaming video and streaming audio. And, um, not only is it uh, dynamic bit rates, but it's also allows you to handle all the encoding and stuff. So I'm like, well, now I don't know which way I'd go for that. But. Yeah. I find that, you know, XAML is predictable, but it infuriates me primarily because of attached properties and, and some of yeah. that syntax. I know yeah. Carl's probably, I probably complained to him a few times cause I'm like, this is, I'm just not getting along with this XAML, you know, cause it, <laughs> It just, it just blows my mind that you have, it's sort of like code where you have, you have a function, but then you got to like keep jumping through all these other functions to sort of add up what it does. XAML sort of works the same way where it's like, oh, I have these things at the top that reference this and CSS is sort of like that, but, but they're fairly detached in HTML. Whenever I nest something in something else, like I know that it's a child of that, like, like all the time. In XAML, no, no, it might not be. It might be the parent, even though it, it's a child in the the actual, you know, XML stack. Uh-huh. So that's <laughs> I find it I find it frustrating, but yeah, I, I think your assessment is is pretty good. 
Yeah, I like to tell people that. Um, well, actually, I, and I can't take credit for this because I watched a plural site video that um, was called. Uh, shoot, I forgot the exact name of it, but it was about uh, web apps versus native apps, mm-hmm. and they were talking about how the web platform is democratic, whereas yes. in, with native apps, you're it's kind of more like a um, you know you're following the advice of a single company for the most part. Yeah. You're following the advice of this entity that says, this is the way to do it. And so all the developers that are using that native stack say, okay, that's the way we'll do it. And you gain the advantage of having a very controlled environment so you can really take care of the users. And that's excellent. Uh, in HTML, you know, this hilarious language stack of HTML and JavaScript has been has been evolving over the last 20 years by millions of people. And it looks like that today. You get these really weird CSS property names where you go, what in the, why would somebody call it that? Mm-hmm. And it's because it's 15 years old and it's, it's not worth it to change it, you know? And it yep. makes it's from another sense. time. Yeah. 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 That actually, that is, that is such a good point. Cause I, I talk to people that say, you know, Hey, you're not innovating fast enough with technology XYZ. Let's take WPF as an example. You're not, you know, you're not innovating on that. Um, or, or actually the, the better example is, you know, Hey, you're dropping support for technology XYZ. So we're going to go to HTML and JavaScript and man, that's, that is just the wild west. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that it, it can't be done. Obviously it can be done and, and people are doing it very well. And it is a, you know, it's, it's not a bad choice. It's, de- it's definitely a viable choice, but that being said tomorrow, all of your stuff could break. And, and half of that could be because Google decided to uh, deprecate something in Chrome and, yep. you know, they're the majority browser and, or it could be IE. I mean, let's, we'll be fair. We'll pick on all browsers. I mean, it could be, um, you know, all, all the browsers could, could decide to make a change tomorrow. And, you know, you have a whole bunch of systems deployed and, you know, they're not necessarily hosted. I mean, what if they're, what if they're hosted internally? I mean, that, that happens, right? So, um, you know, places Carl and I used to work, we had, um, these PCs that would actually get, you know, installed at different locations and they had software on them. And then the user interface was actually an iPod touch. So we'd serve up HTML to them. Well, you know, the Apple decided to, to change some things in, in their, uh, in Safari and WebKit, And, uh, you know, it, it broke all of those appliances, you know, for anybody who would update that iPod, uh, we could say don't ever update, but you know, that wasn't necessarily a great option either. So, you know, thinking that, that, that there, any of these choices are a magic bullet, I think is a very bad idea. Totally agree. Yeah. So, um, anything else that, uh, that we should have talked about regarding JavaScript or, um, any of these other web technologies? You know, I think that, um, one of the things I wanted to mention, I, I like to mention this to crowds whenever we're talking about JavaScript because uh, it tends to be missed. Like I'll I'll go to an event and stand uh, up in front of folks and say, did anybody know that JavaScript has the native capability of doing uh, query selection? And they'll say, no, I had no idea that it would do oh, that. Like like URL, that's why we use in, Yeah, like the URL query. Is that what you're referring uh, no, to? No, no, I'm talking about um, query selection by way of CSS queries. So like oh, just exactly okay. what you tend right. to use jQuery for. Right. And um, and a lot of people don't know that. They don't know that, you know, you can do document.querySelector and, and throw in any CSS selector that you want. And you can, you can do selections in your DOM very easily. And they don't know that in ECMAScript 5, there was um, array functions introduced that are tremendously uh, mm-hmm. valuable. They're kind of the analogy of uh, link functions mm-hmm. in C-sharp. 
and they're, you know, really, really helpful. I'm talking about map and filter and, and, uh, I forgot the, uh, equivalent of any and all. I always get confused between those ones and C sharp, but, um, I think it's some and, ah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, no, those are, there are a lot of things that were introduced in ECMAScript 5. And I think it's because, uh, you know, people don't necessarily put it, take the time to go research the newer areas of JavaScript. It kind of feels like a, a legacy language that's been running in the browser for some time. So the way that I wrote it 10 years ago is the way that I need to continue to write it. Well, whereas it does, uh, evolve, it evolves quite a bit. And then there's, there's all this new stuff coming out in Harmony, you know, in the ECMAScript 6 standard that is just really going to be a dramatic change for JavaScript, the introductions of things like classes and generators and mm-hmm. and uh, and whatnot. There's just a, a lot of stuff that's being built into there. So I would I would encourage anybody to, um, to, even if you're a native stack developer, that's excellent, learn JavaScript because you're going to be speaking at least JSON, if not JavaScript, in a lot of various places. And, and also keep up with the, the latest on JavaScript. Just kind of, you know, keep an eye on how it changes because it changes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. That's a good point about JSON. I mean, JavaScript and JSON go together like peanut butter and jelly, right? I mean, yeah, they're, exactly. that's, that's where JSON was born. So, yep. so whenever you're talking .NET and JSON, you know, now there's that, that gap is, is not as big, but, um, and you can use the dynamic keyword in C sharp. So there's, there's some ways to do some of those, uh, you know, mappings real easily, but, uh, yeah, JavaScript and JSON, they just work together so incredibly well. Yeah. I always tell people if you're going to be making an app or a site, that's some kind of mashup where you're going to be pulling data from other web services, other websites, certainly if you're going to be screen scraping to any degree, Mm -hmm. then, um, I always say that I think that using JavaScript for the language of your app is going to be a good choice because you completely drop that barrier. You're all of a sudden speaking the same language as all the other uh, apps that you're communicating with. No, that's a great point. Now, shifting gears, uh, before the show, you mentioned that you have an IoT home automation project you're working on. You able to tell us more about that, or is that still a secret? Yeah, no, it's not really secret anymore. Okay. I'm kind of having fun with the hardware world. It's uh, an interesting time because, you know, we were doing hardware a long time ago. I remember my senior project in college, which was a long time ago, was a, a little... Um, a robot. I had a little robot that was called the autonomous photographer and he was able to drive around and take pictures at a party, you know, just kind of <laughs> random pictures all over the place. And, and so then after the party, you know, you've got a thousand photos and you can look through there and go, Oh, Hey, this is actually, you know, these, these 50 photos are actually good photos, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I had another project where we had a, a little, what's called a shadow block device that's able to determine what direction light is coming from. And so it would, it was a panel with motors that would keep a solar panel, a mounted solar panel pointing directly at the sun so that it would always be, you know, gathering the right amount of light. And these are the kinds of hardware things I, I did in school. And then, you know, the um, hardware's obviously always been around, but I know I've been writing software the last many years and now there's such a, such a renewed interest and such a, uh, a lot of momentum and good energy around, um, making and makers and, and hardware that I've been having fun with this. And my, my effort is to work in the, the home automation space. So I have a, a commercial solution plugged in right now by a company called Insteon, I-N-S-T-E-O-N. Yep. Yeah. And it's really fun. The Insteon hub extends itself out to the public internet so that I can fire up my app from anywhere and I can see where, you know, if my lights are on or I can look at, um, cameras or whatever I, I want to do through that. And the cool thing about it is that the hub is just talking with a, 
modern REST-based API. So it's just talking the, the language that we're used to seeing. It's passing, passing back objects that are easy to deal with. And so, um, the, the commercial solution is what it is, but I'm also able to extend that. And that's what I'm always looking for. So I've got a, a Node.js service that I just downloaded off of GitHub. I didn't start it myself. And, and I've got this service running so that I can um, write my own logic around what I want my house to do. Whenever this light comes on, I want this one to go off. Or whenever this light comes on, I want this fan to come on. And, and uh, it's super fun and, uh, for me. Very cool. Very cool. So we're going to try something new. You're going to be our guinea pig. I got a game here that I actually bought my kids. Excellent. And uh, so first I need you to pick a number between one and four. Three. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. You have to pick choice one or two. Okay. So choice, and I, these are on printed on cards. I'm not making up these questions. So your first choice is, while on a camping trip, would you rather wake up with ants in your nose and ears? Or choice number two, uh, would you rather wake up with a toe in your mouth from someone else uh, who is also sleeping in your tent? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I recently, like last weekend, I went camping Carl, with my son. Carl's giving me the craziest look. <laughs> He's like, oh, this is going off the reels. Go this is, no, this is good. Okay. This is good. Because last weekend, I went camping with my three-year-old son. And I actually would not have been surprised at all if I would have woken up with his toe <laughs> in my mouth because he's all over the place in that tent, every which position all night long. Yeah, yeah. I never actually did get the toe in the mouth, but it certainly would have been preferable to ants. <laughs> yeah. This doesn't really specify like if it's a random stranger's toe. <laughs> yeah, I, that's true. That it might, would be very might, different. That might change it. Carl, do you it want would. a card or do you want to move on? <laughs> I, I would have said I, I was would have chosen the same as Jeremy did. Okay. Do you want, do you want a card? Sure. Why not? I think he needs a new one. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Pick a number between one and four. Two. Two. Okay. Would you rather lick 1000 stamps or read out loud all the last names that start with a in the phone book? I would lick the stamps. That's awesome. A thousand. Stamps. They taste so good. Yeah. yeah. That actually, the, the taste never bothered me. You can't, can you even buy stamps that you can lick anymore? Maybe, <laughs> maybe off of forever. eBay. <laughs> now now actually isn't that how the, the that's how uh, george's wife died on seinfeld right it was licking stamps or envelopes <laughs> so anyway i thought that was just a fun game i i got that for my kids and uh, i have not licked a stamp i i haven't even put a stamp on an envelope in weeks yeah so we'll have to uh we'll have to use a card each show and we'll see how that goes so uh you can write into the show and let us know if you like that or if we should just get rid of it so anyway let's move on to the azure pick of the week so this week I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot, but what I'm picking is Express Route. And I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show before. This is kind of a neat feature. So what it is, is it's basically a private connection between your, uh, you know, existing, we'll just call it your existing building, your business and Azure. So, you know, you can get uh, a fiber. It's, you know, it's not like a piece of fiber that runs from your uh, you know, building to the Azure data center, but it goes over a private network so they can, they can route that through private routers. So it's essentially a private fiber connection right into Azure data center. And this gives you a couple things. It gets you super high performance transfers in and out. And then it also gives you an extra level of security. I would argue that, you know, the encryption uh, of a VPN going over the internet to Azure is perfectly secure, but this gives you that, that extra level of paranoia where you can encrypt that data over that fiber, but you can also um, you know, it's not going over the public internet. So nobody ever sees those packets. Uh, this is kind of cool because I think, you know, companies that are thinking about, you know, there, well, there's two different groups of, of things that I see moving up to Azure. 
uh, moving up to, you know, a, a cloud environment. And that's, you know, applications that people are trying to serve out to their customers. But then there's also like the traditional IT infrastructure and Express Route in particular works really good for that existing IT infrastructure because you can sort of, you know, take step one is connect your data center with the Azure data center. And then step two is you can start using virtual machines in the Azure data center instead of your own. And you get, you know, things like, um, uh, you know, per minute billing and, and things like that for for a lot of these services. And then it makes it really easy to slowly remove these services, but still get that same performance and and uh, and really high level of availability that uh, that you were getting before. So this is a this is a neat feature. I mean, it costs you obviously, you know, pay a fair amount for it, depending on how much speed you need. But you can you can pay a lot of money if you want a lot of speed. And uh, it, it's just a it's a really neat option. So very few companies, you know, percentage wise, I think would be interested in this. But it is it's actually a pretty amazing service for for anybody who um, has that scenario. Then, Carl, what is your app pick of the week? So my app of the week is actually an app that's still in alpha. It's by um, the publisher Hidden Pineapple. And these guys, before Twitter had um, shut off all the clients, had made a really outstanding uh, Windows Phone Twitter client called Rowey. And like I said, it was really well done. It was solid. And they had announced uh, a few months ago that they were going to make a better mail client than the built-in Windows Phone mail client. And they said they're really going to focus on design and usability. Um, today, uh, they announced their first alpha of this, and it's called Maestro. Um, and it's still in preview. Um, there are definitely some bugs on it, but they said they kind of wanted to get it out there where it's at. And uh, I just knowing what they were capable of before, I think that this app shows a lot of pro- promise. So if you're into uh, you know wanting to try out a mail app that's better than what's built in, uh, check out Maestro Preview. Okay. Cool. I will check that out. So, Jeremy, where can people find you if they want to learn more? They can find me online at codefoster.com. So uh, that's my last name, Foster. Some <laughs> some people confuse that with CodeFaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you should be coding faster. <laughs> no, CodeFoster.com. <laughs> yeah, you should. And on Twitter at CodeFoster. Well, and actually, you also have a show on Channel 9 as well, right? I do. Yeah. It's called Code Chat. And we talk with, uh, it's a video feed, is, but you can get the audio as well. So if you're trying to listen to it without getting speeding ticket or uh, distracted driving tickets. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's called Code Chat. And you can find that at codefoster.com slash code chat. I talk with a lot of Microsoft program managers about um, what their their products are that they're that are being released, you know, so like really cool features in Azure or whatever. And I also talk with a lot of startups. I just talked with one today. It'll be released in in a few weeks. Um, uh, a startup that's working on they're called Chai Energy, and they're working on a a really cool um, uh, company that basically takes the energy from the meter on your house and gives you good information about the energy usage in your house of specific devices. Like they're even able to recognize, oh, this is the refrigerator that's talking on the on the feed right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so tell you that you need a better refrigerator because this is wasting a lot of energy. So yeah, I talk to startups like that. It's pretty fun. Very cool. So you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show by searching for MS Dev Show on your favorite podcasting app. Uh, visit us at msdevshow.com. Leave some comments. Uh, check out the links. And we have all the show notes there of everything that we talked about. 
and then send your comments and feedback to feedback at MS Dev Show. And be sure to leave us a review at iTunes. I see some people have been out there leaving a good review. So we really, really appreciate that. But also go to Stitcher, Player FM, or whatever podcast aggregator you use. And what about you, Carl? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Perfect. Well, Jeremy, I had a blast talking to you and uh, uh, it was a great conversation. So thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Good times. Yeah.